Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 22 of Music is Not a Genre, MXG. I almost didn't pause there that time. Damn, I'm, I'm like a dancer. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. It's $5 a month and you get so much more than just this podcast. So much more. Or you can support at anchor.fm slash music is not a genre if you're more into the audio version. Although you'd be missing this wonderful uh, sartorial splendor here and the diorama. The public hub is youtube.com slash at music is not a genre where you get the podcast and playlists and, and live music, uh, so many other things. Uh, my website is nickdomadio.com, and please support and listen to my band Rec, R-E-C, at recarea.bandcamp.com or wherever you stream music. Getting back to my website, nickdomadio.com. If you go there on the homepage, right smack at the top, is a brand new announcement. I have opened a merch store for Rec and Music is Not a Genre, T-shirts and pullovers and other shirts and some other weird ideas that I've decided to put on T-shirts. There are 10 different shirts right now in multiple colors and designs. So please, the link is kind of a pain to name uh, because I haven't, uh, you know, branded it yet link-wise. So just go to nickdomadio.com right there. Click on the giant picture of the merch store. I'll also put the link down below. I think you'll find some things that you will enjoy. And now let's get to the topic. This week, it's one I've been putting off for a while. Ever since I started the Death is Dumb series, this person has been on my list. And I couldn't figure out an angle for it, and that it's kind of appropriate. So the title is, Death is Dumb 11, David Bowie, 14 Subtitles About Change. Which right there tells you the, the this is just fraught with uh, conflict and confusion and again, makes perfect sense based on the you know subject. I'm going to tell you what those subtitles were just for fun. Uh, uncapturable chameleon, classified, chameleon, classification, chameleon. So that's that the chameleon area. Music is not a genre because that's pretty much, you know, Bowie is the epitome of that. In a prism of his own design. A little too clever. Normal, not normal. Not quite on the money. Constant equals change. Or constant change. Constancy of change. One constant change. Uh, a pinup you can't pin down references his album. Some, and his uh, beauty. Something about uh, restless soul. Reality of illusion. Reality is the illusion. I think those were 14. And then the 15th, of course, is 14 subtitles about change. And you can see how this all epitomizes not just how hard it is to classify David Bowie, but also my own personal kind of fraught relationship with Bowie. Bowie is somebody who has been uh, in my life, his music has been in my life since I was a child. And I remember first feeling kind of exceptionally aware of Bowie with Let's, Let's Dance, of course. Uh, I think a lot of people can say that. And then followed him off and on throughout his career, more tangentially than anything else. And that's likely because I was at times in my life where I needed more concreteness out of what I was listening to and I couldn't pin him down and it was kind of confusing and weird. And I think a lot of people feel that about Bowie and and the kind of breadth of his music. You can zone in on one album or era and kind of get a sense of, okay, that's where he was. He landed in a certain area. But if you look at his career as a whole, you, you don't know where he belongs. And I'll discuss that a little bit later as far as where I think he belongs and why that's an awesome thing in general. But that also explains why in my entire collection of everything, music-wise, the only things I have that have Bowie's stamp on them are this book here, Bowie's Bookshelf which uh, Catherine got me, and it does go through like books that, and it's really, I think, important if you want to understand Bowie because so much of what he did was influenced by his love of literature and philosophy and all of that stuff. So I would recommend that book. And then these two cassettes here, which was the first and last time I ever actually physically bought anything by Bowie. I'm sure I had you know, made cassettes from friends of Let's Dance. It's probably in my bag somewhere. 
and or burn some things, stuff like that. But these are the only things I actually bought. And they are the two Tin Machine albums from 89, I think, and 91, which I'll get to when I do the discography. But that was a point where what he was doing and what I was listening to kind of converged. And that's why I, you know, popped in there. I think, I mean, the same thing sort of happened in the early 80s, but that was more just he was everywhere, you know, at the time. And and if you were into pop music, which I've always been, you will be into that. Uh, And so, you know, you're going to hear a lot of that kind of uh, expression of this fraught relationship, which ultimately ends up in extreme love and admiration and all of that, that, uh, you know, throughout this podcast. Some things to note. He only received one non-posthumous Grammy for his long-form video for the song Blue Jean, which was on the follow-up album to uh, Let's Dance, which I, in my head, thought was on the same album. I guess because it was from the same era. And that, to me, just is another example of how impossible to grasp he was. And, you know, we can say every damn thing we want about the Grammys. They are slowly improving, but they, they, and they often... And every now and then they'll get it right as far as awarding people, you know, for that year, what, you know, the deserving uh, award. But very often they don't get it right. And very often they leave out people that really deserved recognition. Uh, we, you know, a lot of people talk about how Beyonce has never won album of the year, even though now she's won more Grammys than anyone. That isn't that is an oversight, and I think they're referring to the year that Adele won and and all of that. And that's just one example of how the Grammys, like all award shows, drop the ball. And if we don't take them seriously, we can have fun with them and hope that they expose people to new music, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If you're somebody who thinks awards are more important than that, then you have to acknowledge that just a lot of people who were and are deserving just don't get it. And with Bowie, you can understand that because. He 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 always wanted to be successful, but he never put, you know, ultimate success and that kind of recognition at the top of his list. It was always about artistic integrity and, you know, just where the muse took him. So it makes sense. But it also makes sense because he's, again, just so hard to classify. And if you can't classify a person in, a, a, you know, awards show where every single thing is a classification, then how do you, you know award anything and so he got obviously posthumous grammy but then the non-posthumous went to the long form video for blue jean and it really is that in in the micro i'll say this in the micro he didn't he didn't need to be understood i think there's obviously a part of him that wanted to communicate what was inside of him to as many people as possible but not at the expense of doing in the way he wanted to do it and I say in the micro because there is a macro of his career that just brings it all together. And we'll talk more and more about that as we go through this. Uh, death is dumb. And, you know, that means then, though, that a lot of his stops along the way, that kind of micro, you may have gotten comfortable in one of them. Like, let's say you were into Station to Station or uh, Ziggy or, you know, Let's Dance or Heathen, whatever. Then you were, oh, he's going to do the same thing. And very rarely did he do the same thing. Or if he did kind of somewhat the same thing, like with the Berlin Trilogy, he still varied it from album to album to the point where there's there are albums in that trilogy that aren't my favorites and then there's an album that is one of my all-time favorites even though he was kind of in the same realm he never you know was too restless to stay in one place and i respect and admire that there are very few artists who have done that in their careers that are well known i think there are a lot of lesser known artists or unknowns who have done that and i think part of the reason why they are lesser known and unknown is because they have done unclassifiable music. They've done music that listeners and in particular record companies and other people who are trying to market music don't know what to do with. And he happened to come of age after, listen, 10 years of trying. You know, he had some minor successes prior to that, but he didn't really hit it big until about 10 years into his career. But he came of age at a time 
when the pop music world and music world itself was eclectic and expansive and looking for more this you know early 70s is one of the greatest periods of pop music for that reason you know so when you look at things like uh summer of soul and i think there was some other special i think it was 1971 or something like that you're just blown away by the the breadth and the depth of the music that happened and again it's not because that's unique to any time it's it's because it converged with pop culture so he he had a little bit of a benefit of timing there which good for him but that means a lot of other lesser known unknown artists have fallen by the wayside because they refuse to do one thing all the time but then you do have artists like prince like the beatles uh i'm going to always mention uh, chicago and and wreck i will always mention these are artists who have never wanted to repeat themselves more than once, you know, or twice on on an album or or from album to album. And more than that, if you take a look at the macro of their careers, you can classify some of what they do some of the time, but to classify them as one type of artist is impossible. And and that to me unclassifiable is different from eclectic and they're both equally good fine you know it's not a judgment call but unclassifiable to me means you are actually stepping completely out of a genre you've done to do a completely different style and sound of music as opposed to eclectic which to me you think of bands like the kinks genesis uh i have well actually i i don't oh yeah Stone Temple Pilots, George Michael, you know, people who expanded the range of what they did, but still within their own realm. They never really jumped out of the type of music they were doing so far that you could say, whoa, that was left field. Where did they go? Why did they do that? This is, you know, driving me crazy. Well, however you respond to something like that, there was always a sense that they stayed within that wheelhouse. Uh, you can, I think anybody with a long career... I, you know, and ACDC is the opposite of that. They've basically done the same thing all the time. The Stones, in some ways, yeah, but more or less have done basically the same thing. The Who have gone slightly further out. I think the Kinks went further out than all of them, and the Beatles even further than that. Uh, you know, you can talk about so many stars who have, you can even say like uh, Justin Timberlake, who did like a, I guess, a country album or whatever you want. Nothing he's ever done has gone so far afield that it was wildly different. And sometimes that's a great thing. Like when you talk about, you know, George Michael doing kind of jazzy stuff along with his pop and funk and, and, and you know, dance stuff. It worked really well that he still stayed within his realm. But then you talk about somebody like, a you know, Timberlake, who to me... If he was going to go country, you got you got to go full in and just leave your persona and all the rest of that stuff behind. And maybe he attempted to. I don't know. But anyway, that to me is to just illustrate that there's a difference between being eclectic and being unclassifiable. People might mention bands like uh, I've seen online. People mention bands like Devo and Fish and the Grateful Dead. And yeah, super eclectic. But also, I think, very easy to classify. And again not a judgment that's just you know and and you know on top of that david bowie was someone you can even say you know madonna she's she's gotten pretty eclectic here and there but never out of her wheelhouse you know and she's always her and and that's where i think someone like a bowie or prince is just so wildly different even from the beatles you know or or chicago or wreck and that is that they also took on not just different kinds of music, but different personae, if you want to get, you know, proper personas, uh, and and do it successfully, like really actually make a full living and be superstars at it. So, you know, Prince had his different characters and different, you know, voices when he pitched his voice up and all of that and, and really kind of subsumed himself in those characters at times. Bowie, even more so than that, was openly taking on characters, uh, which I'm going to get into in a second. And I think the reason, one of the reasons why he did that was because he realized after his first full album, 
which came after he was in a band called the Conrads in the early 60s when he was in his teens. And then he did a bunch of singles and for a couple of different record companies and, and, you know, was still doing that kind of like mid late 60s singer songwriter troubadour thing. I think a part of him, you know, realized when he was, you know, kind of compelled to change his name from Davy Jones to David Bowie, that even that authentic singer-songwriter thing was a persona. And I mentioned that in one of my uh, Illusion and Music episodes. If you take a look at that playlist, there's four episodes there. And one of them has to do with the fact that we often think of, you know, heartfelt, intimate singer-songwriter music as somehow more authentic than electronic multi-layered music or, or, you know, grunge or something like that. And no, you know, that's not, that's not where authenticity comes in. It doesn't come in in the sound or the image, the production. It comes in in the intent and how much that te- the intent was gotten across by the artist and how much it connects with the audience. And so once David Bowie realized, well, I could be anything, he really started to mess with that, both in his image and in his sound and never stopped. So just to go through some of the personae he took on, uh, Major Tom, which to me was sort of a proto, was a kind of midway between one of his acting roles and an actual persona. Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, Halloween Jack, uh, the Soul Man, briefly, the Thin White Duke, and then uh, years and years of various different characters. You could say the DJ, you could say Pierrot, the clown, Screaming Lord Byron, and, all, and then any of his film and stage roles, returning back to an actual persona. Uh, for his last album where he took on the Blind Prophet or Button Eyes. And if you look at the collages I made uh, using 10 different shots of Bowie for the graphic card for this, you'll see I include you know many of those in there. And again, to kind of make a point that all of those put together are Bowie and none of those are Bowie, you know. And one of the things I think... You know, so you say, well, he's unclassifiable, moved from genre to genre, uh, never stayed long in one place, maybe did two or three albums of the same kind of thing, such as this Tin Machine, but even then made variations, you know, from one to the next. So what is even, you know, the common thread in any of that stuff? And to me, it's... It's that it's three things to me. That one, it's that anything he did was passed through his filter. And uh, I mean, of course. Now, I, you know, if, when you're an artist, that's always going to happen. The, the one time where I'd say that that can be kind of overcome in some ways is if you are a writer or, or a producer for hire, where you are actively trying to imitate another template song or type of music, then you are coming out of yourself and doing something that's completely not you. I mean, even then, it does pass through some part of your filter. But I think in this case, Bowie was in trying to sound uh, 100% like, you know, Philly soul people during that period. But he wanted that fullness of the influence to be brought through his music. So he filtered it through his own voice and the way he likes to do things and out came what he did. And number two, the voice himself. Yes, he had his low voice and he had his piercing high voice and he had all the voices in between. He had the rock voice and the pop and the soul and the troubadour and all of that stuff. And yet it's always Bowie and you can always tell it's Bowie. There's not been a time where I've heard a Bowie song and said, who the hell is that? And then the third thing would be the lyrics because no matter what he did, there was always a literary aspect to his lyrics. There, was, there, There's always some commonality of thought and philosophy within the lyrics, even if they were personal, impersonal, telling a third-person story or a narrative or telling something about his life. There was always some, you know, some, you could say slight remove to a lot of them, a uh, uh, little art, artistry and artifice in them. And if I had the name of fourth thing, it's that, uh, something that Philip Glass said about Bowie's music, which is he has a gift for creating fairly complex pieces of music masquerading as simple pieces. So no matter what he did, even anything that was seemingly simple, there was always something subtle and complex in there. I talked about this with Jim Costelli about 
you know, how he likes to put in a little, you know, medicine with the candy or whatever, that kind of thing, where you make it accessible and, and seemingly simple, but you've got a lot of richness in there underneath. And I, that's, that is a hallmark of everything that I've ever done as well. And then Glass went on to do compositions based on a couple of Bowie's albums. I want to say from the Berlin Trilogy, but look it up. You know. Uh, and, and like Prince, in his own way, he shared the wealth with other artists. He worked with so many others. Uh, he had a big hit with John Lennon. He, you know, produced, uh, you know, for Iggy Pop in the 70s. He had that famous Christmas song with Bing Crosby. He had the hit in the 80s with uh, Under Pressure with Freddie Mercury. He had, I think, Dancing in the Streets with Mick Jagger in the 80s. He then worked with, he worked with Tina Turner in the 80s. Uh, he worked with Trent Reznor and Robert Smith. And almost all of those were huge hits, you know, working with other people. He also worked with Cher and Lou Reed and Mark Bolin and David Gilmour, Arcade Fire, Billy Corgan, Morrissey, Alicia Keys, the band Placebo, Dave Grohl, uh, you know, to varying degrees. A lot of this was just live and you can hear those live recordings and see them, you know, YouTube and all of that. But uh, nevertheless, you know, he liked to collaborate in many ways. I mean, even Tim Machine itself was a was a co- collaboration, excuse me. Before I get to the last part of this, and I know it's a lot, but, uh, you know, it's gonna, there's going to be more, <laughs> which is the discography. I want to make mention of one thing. Bowie died in early 2016 at the age of 69. I don't care if any of you feel like that is old or older. It still sucks. Uh, I still, you know, stand by my philosophy on this uh, sub-series here that uh, death is dumb and, you know, robs us of all the, the brilliance and beauty and wonder and love that the people would have given to the world and they survived longer, however much longer that might have been. And of course, obviously robs that person of being able to do that and live a life. Uh, and that's obvious. That's just incredibly true for Bowie. But it came at a time like right after Bowie died, Prince died, right? I found, and I've I've thought about this then, and I think it's been you know fairly well established within me that this is true, that the years 2014 to 2017 were just an absolute shit show for tragic and big deaths. And the difference being, a big death would be somebody you know lived to a ripe old age, and died peacefully or whatever. Still sucks, but it's not tragic. But it was the death of a huge person, you know. And then tragic is yeah. Dying young, dying for some, you know, horrible mental or physical health reason. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to name a bunch of those big and tragic deaths from 2014 to 2017 to illustrate that. 2014, to me, was kind of the canary in the coal mine year where you had when, and this is not music, but I think these two people are important. Robin Williams and Philip Seymour Hoffman die very unexpectedly and and surprisingly it was like just two huge spirits were taken out of the world, just ripped from the world. And it felt to me like something was changing, you know. And then you had some other people like Phil Everly of the Everly Brothers, Pete Seeger, who was really old when he died, but was still, you. he just was always around, you know, and you expected him to be around forever. Frankie Knuckles, who's a house uh, DJ pioneer. Tommy Ramone, one of the many Ramones who have died. And Joe Cocker which was a big one for me because I always, uh, I loved his voice and his quirkiness and I loved uh, his interpretations of Beatles songs as well. Uh, Then 2015, that's when things were accelerating. You had Scott Weiland, Chris Squire of Yes, Natalie Cole, huge shock there. Mike Percaro, one of the, you know, one of the two Percaro brothers who died from Toto. Uh, Bob Burns, who was the drummer for Leonard Skinner. And we all hopefully know the tragedy of that band. Benny King, big one, you know, when you were a kid in the 70s, 80s, and an absolute, obviously before, Benny King was huge just for Stand By Me, and of course the movie Stand By Me, and you had that song, and there were so many throwbacks and retro things. Uh, speaking of Kings, B.B. King died that year. Someone else you thought would always be around. Ornette Coleman died. James Horner, which I think was a car crash, and it was a huge shock, and if you're into soundtracks and scoring and on movie music and all, that was a big one for you. And then uh, another actor, Maureen O'Hara, 
which uh, so somebody I always was into from the time I was a kid, whether it was for Miracle on 34th Street or, uh, oh, damn, that Irish movie. I don't know why I am forgetting it. You can put it down in the in the comments uh, with, you know, with what's his name? Uh, <laughs> oh, geez, I'm forgetting, you know, um, the big, uh, the big, uh, never mind. Uh, that, that, that was a crash and burn right there. Let's just say that. Alain Toussaint, uh, also in 2015, filthy animal whose name was Phil Taylor was the motorhead drummer. I think that was slightly before Lemmy died. And then 2016 is when it was at its full blown peak. You had Prince die and Bowie die. Glenn Fry died. George Martin, uh, was a big loss. Fife dog from a tribe called quest. Prince B from PM Dawn. I had no idea that Prince B was dead until I lo- I did all this research. And that sucks. And uh, he died in 2016. Leonard Cohen died in 2016. Another big one. In- and George Michael. Again, just tragedy. And George Michael, to me, was similar to somebody like a Wyland or uh, a Chris Cornell, who you thought that they had gotten over their issues. They got into their you know, fifties or, or close to it. And then you realize they didn't 2017 then to, you know, was the long trail off. And again, it's not that every year doesn't have its big and tragic deaths, but I just really believe this period was exceptional. Chuck Berry died in 2017. Chris Cornell, Glenn Campbell, right after his big uh, kind of final comeback, Walter Becker of uh, Steely Dan, Grant Hart of Husker Du. That was a kind of a big one for me. Valdir de Oliveira, uh, who was the percussionist uh, for Chicago for many, many years. Uh, so that was, uh, you know, I believe died on stage. And I actually plan to do possibly at some point uh, either a short or full, probably a short pod fast on tragic drummer deaths. And it was kind of amazing when I was researching that, I, how many people of them uh, died on stage. And how many just uh, musicians in general have died on stage? Uh, in 2017, Tom Petty, another ridiculous loss due to, you know, oxy or fentanyl or whatever. Fats Domino, Malcolm Young of ACDC, David Cassidy, uh, Pat Tanizio of um, the Smithereens. And when I did the Smithereens episode last season, again, I had lost touch with him, didn't know he had died. So it was pretty sad. And then Chester Bennington of Lincoln Park. So uh, getting to the discography, I will say this. Yes, I've had an off and on relationship with Bowie. So that means that there were times where I wasn't into his music. I, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't have listed him as a heart artist, you know, on that A to Z list until recently. Uh, And, and came to him uh, the year, I believe the year before he died, there was a great documentary and that was when I think he knew he was dying. And so a lot of this stuff was coming out. And that's when I really dove in. And it was one of those things which same, just like with George Carlin. Right before he died, I was like, I've missed out on a lot of amazing things because I just haven't taken the time and attention to focus on their work. And let me do that before it's too late, in a sense. And that's what I did here with Bowie. And then when he died... He was the first ever official chronography I did, which if you don't know what that is, it's a, an MXG term, meaning uh, listening to an artist's primary catalog in chronological order. Uh, so the discography in chronological order, that's where I get that portmanteau. And, it, you know, the, you'd see I have a list of over 50 uh, chronographies I've done. And it's not that I didn't listen to full catalogs before then, but A... That was back when you had to buy CDs or cassettes or albums. Would have been a lot harder, a lot more expensive. And and B and B, so it was done over time. There were some times where I would catch up with an artist and like, let me buy the entire CD back collection of Prince. At one point I did that, or U2, and I did that, or Chicago. You know, but as far as actively saying beginning to end or up until this point in time. Bowie was the first chronography I did, and of course it was because of streaming services. Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you 
so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So let's get to this discography. Uh, and I say all that because I don't know all of these albums as intimately, even though, even though I've heard them all. But I wanted to make some comments from each one because I think they're worth illustrating. So, you know, his first official album, David Bowie, in 1967, was orchestral chamber pop. And I'm going to mention, like, the style for all of these because I just want to show how many different styles he went through and how awesome that is. Uh, A couple of signature songs there were Rubber Band and Love You Till Tuesday, but it was essentially a failure. He changed uh, record companies and put out another album called David Bowie in 1969, which was reissued later as Space Oddity. And of course, that title or kind of title track was an awesome, awesome song. And that's kind of characterizes psychedelic folk rock. So it has, you know, a little bit of what he did in 67, but branching it out more broadly in, in that sense, but also bringing it back to that kind of acoustic sound. And then the year later, The Man Who Sold the World, which I think is really when a lot of attention started to be placed on him. Uh, Although I wouldn't say it was his big breakout. 1970, which was just hard rock and that title song, of course. And you can always think of the Nirvana cover, which was an awesome cover of that. If you watch my covers episode, I think I actually even said that. I don't remember if I said it was a tie or if Nirvana's version was better. I think I might have said that, but you know, look it up. The covers, covers and originals challenge. I think it's called. And then seventy one, Hunky Dory, which was kind of mellow pop rock, melodic art pop. It was sim- you know, kind of a similar to the first two albums, but obviously with changes, including the song changes and Life on Mars. And to me, I think this was his first truly great album. And I could listen to Life on Mars every single week, you know. Uh, not just because it was featured in both the British and American versions of the TV show of that name, uh, although that's probably when I really fell in love with it, but it's just an awesome song, and it's a fun song to sing as well. And then the following year, I think you would call this his big breakout, which is when he just finally decided, I'm going to go full persona and just you know allow my theater, love of theater and all of that and storytelling to take over. The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars in 1972, which was glam and rock and proto-punk, really. And and to me, proto-glam, too, because I don't think a lot of people were using the word glam back in 72. It would have been a little bit later. Uh, An absolute classic, Moon Age Daydream, which I had a chance to perform on bass with uh, Fred Sauter a while back. Loved it. Starman with Ziggy, of course. And then Suffragette City, which I will say this about Suffragette City. Yes, I came to a kind of a consciousness of Bowie as a powerhouse during Let's Dance and Blue Jean and all of that. But then when I got into high school and my friend and DJ partner, Mike Smith, started, you know, bringing in the music that he loved to mix it with the music that I loved, he he exposed me to a lot of things that I wouldn't have heard otherwise likely. And for some reason, on one of our many mixes, which is on... It's on youtube.com slash app music is not a genre. Look back at my 1980s mixes, my playlists that I recreated there, and you'll find one that has Suffragette City on it. And when I heard that, I believe at the time I was like, who is that? And then I read, oh, Bowie. And then I said, wait a minute, that doesn't sound anything like Let's Dance. And that's when I said, oh, this is somebody I'm going to have to watch, which it's no coincidence. Then shortly after that, he released the you know Tin Machine albums. Uh, Aladdin Sane in 1973 was more kind of glam and hard rock. You had Gene Genie from that. Uh, to me, it was of, uh, you know, of a piece with Ziggy Stardust. But you'll notice one thing here, which is when I've done other artists, uh, you know, discographies, uh, especially with the Beatles series I'm doing, I've broken them into eras and, and phases. And I'm not doing that here with Bowie uh, for two, well, really for one reason, which is to, can further prove the point 
that any phase he ever went through was short-lived and extremely deliberate and bled into other phases in ways that made it kind of less distinctive on the whole, except with with a few exceptions. So there's really no, it doesn't serve to the way like a Wikipedia does, which I love, believe me, I love breaking things down into phases and, and subtitles and all that crap. You know, I do that all the time, but I just, I just felt like it, it, started to compartmentalize Bowie in a way that was artificial, more so than for probably almost any other artist. Uh, and that, But that said, I feel like Aladdin Sane was kind of a spinoff from Ziggy. And then uh, took a break and did pinups, which was very similar to the previous two albums, but it was all cover song, very interesting selections of cover songs. I think I talked about that in my covers albums, uh, episode, which is different from the covers and originals challenge. Uh, Diamond Dogs in 1974 was the one where people were like, oh, we're not just, you're not just this glam dude, you know, and that's all they maybe knew him as, even though he had a career before then. You're doing funk and soul. There was, it was glam-ish, but it was, it was much more funk and soul. It had even more of a pop feel to it. Rebel Rebel comes from that album. So that's a perfect example you know, kind of funk rock, I guess. And then full-blown on Young Americans, just Philly Soul. He called it, what? Plastic Soul, which is the second week in a row I've used that phrase because it's something that, you know, McCartney said uh, and they were talking, that was originally going to be the Rubber Soul name and they were talking about that in reference to the Stones and Bowie was very open saying, like, this is Plastic Soul. It's like White Boy Soul. Young Americans, fame, my God, with John Lennon. Uh, Fascination, which was co-written by Luther Vandross. So kind of a cool thing there. He, he had a real rich career in many, many things, including songwriting. 75. 76, Station to Station, was even more deep funk and disco and soul, but leaning into kind of the electronic kraut rock thing, which makes sense considering what's coming next. And it has the song Golden Years, which is probably, along with Life on Mars, within my top five Bowie songs. Uh, I've not made that list, but yeah, I think that Golden Years is right up there. Uh, Another one that I could listen to every week. And see, this is to me the difference between a pop song that, that is what it is on its face and nothing more, and a pop song that is more, and that is... Repeated listens of a pop song that is only what it is eventually wear you out. But repeated listens of something like a Golden Years that has weirdness and depth underneath that pop sheen draws you in each time you, you listen to it. And then you get into the one time maybe or one of two or three times where I will actually say there's a phase because many people have said it and I think even he would have said that and that's the Berlin Trilogy. Brian Eno producing, starting with Low in 1977. Uh, I believe this was a crossover with the Iggy Pop album that he did that, you know. And this was art rock, experimental rock, obviously ambient when you have Eno in there, and electro because the, the kraut rock and all of that. And just, yeah, very kind of broad and experimental. And then Heroes in 1977 a song that's been covered a million times, uh, both professionally and, and by a lot of amateurs. And that's wonderful. It's a wonderful song. Uh, it's, it's, it's an album heroes that leans slightly more conventional than low, but still has a lot of experimentation to it. And that kind of Berlin trilogy kraut rock feel and heroes to me is the standout song there because it's a song song. Uh, Lodger, was it the guy from King Crimson who worked with uh, Bowie on Heroes? I believe maybe one low two. I don't remember. Uh, tell me in the comments. That's not one, one of the notes I put down here. Lodger, the end of the Berlin Trilogy in 1979, which was of a piece with the first two, but more conventional, a little more conventional electro, more conventional songs, and was leaning into the new wave, which was coming, new wave, new romantic, and had some elements of, not a phrase I love, but world music, uh, music from other countries, I will call it. And even though it's part of the Berlin Trilogy, 
this to me just rises fully above the first two albums and to one of my top favorite albums of Bowie of all time. And what's interesting to me is that Eno used, and I think he might have invented these near around this time, this card set that he created called Oblique Strategies, which don't know was so dumb. I once bought it and then sold it, and I think I'm just going to go ahead and buy it again. But it's, but I, I think the the premise there is you pull a card out of the deck that has that that has some weird idea or objective, and that'll be the driving force of the next thing you do. And you do that, and you pull out another card, and that'll be the next driving force. And it adds some randomness and also a little, little like uh, paradoxically determination into what you're doing. And I think that's kind of cool. And obviously, it worked on Lodger. And then Scary Monsters and Super Creeps in 1980 just went full on new wave and post punk, which those two are always related new wave, post punk, as far as I'm concerned. The songs I love on this title album, the title song, Scary Monsters. Ashes to Ashes and Fashion, another fave of mine, and duh, because the late 70s, early 80s have always been a huge uh, touch point for me as far as production and and the types of music that were being produced and created back then. So it makes sense that Lodger and Scary Monsters would be favorites of mine. And then, you, you know, he takes a break and wants to rejigger and say, well, what have I not done? Well, I haven't gone straight for the charts. You know, I've gotten the charts, but let me go straight for them and work with Niall freaking Rogers, Chic, and so many other things. Create Let's Dance in 1983. Again, this is where I came in as a fan. And it's dance rock and pop and new wave. And, you know, you've got the title song, Let's Dance. You know, but then you listen to songs that were also hits like Modern Love and China Girl, which I learned was an Iggy Pop song that he covered. And you're like, okay, those were hits, but those are also weird. And that's what I think Philip Glass was talking about. And that's, again, where I like to live when I'm doing rec music. And he, and a lot of what Prince did, you know, was just, and, and certainly uh, quite a bit, at least, of what the Beatles did, was to allow yourself to get weird and esoteric within the confines of a, of a well-structured and accessible pop song. Follow-up in the same vein tonight in 1984, had the big hit Blue Jean, also the title song sung with Tina Turner. Uh, and again, I thought Blue Jean was on Let's Dance. And that's, again, a weird song. And there's an abrasiveness to some of the things that Bowie sings on both of these albums that contrasts with his kind of low, uh, soothing, crooning voice that he was also doing then. And I love that mix because it, it, you know, it reminds me in a way of Scott Weiland where he would have that kind of lower, low grungier voice and then go up and have an almost the John Lennon kind of quality to his voice. Uh, took another break, short break, never let me down in 1987. Did I believe let some people down, although not any discredit to him. It's just where pop was going then. It was very pop rock, but also had some art rock to it. Uh, and all this, I have all this. Yeah. And, and, oh yeah, it was like a mix of a lot of things that he had done before hard rock and then was like, all right, well, I'm just going to go off and do something different then. If that's, I've done that and it's going in, the world's going in a different direction. Let me start up a band, Tin Machine, you know, not the the proto kind of starting up a band when he did Ziggy Stardust and all that and people you know would eventually come and go but let's just have a bunch of guys as an actual rock band noise rock post punk alt rock like oh yeah you know i'm i'm in what was he then in his 40s i guess but i can do whatever else is going on now which is another thing i love about the artists that i follow which is they don't get stuck in an era they might refer back to their favorite eras and do things that are in their wheelhouse and do things that they love and just want to do because it's them. But they have an ear to the ground, ear to the ground of what's going on in the world of music at the time. So they're not just completely out of touch. And I have to have always respected that about David Bowie. Uh, and Tin Machine is a perfect example of that. Tin Machine 2, even better album, found the voice and also had more developed uh, and you know and accessible songs and probably again one of my top five 
uh, favorite albums of David Bowie. And then he went to kind of a jazz, soul, hip-hop, electro-pop, disco, techno thing, just another pivot on Black Tie, White Noise, which was a big album for him, actually. Same year, the Buddha of Suburbia, which was some of that music meant for a soundtrack, or some of it ended up on a soundtrack, I believe. So it was a little more esoteric than Black Tie, White Noise, but had a similar vein to it. Uh, Then 95, really starting to lean more heavily into uh, like industrial and electro for the album Outside. And a very interesting album, like really worth a listen. I mean, they're all worth a listen, but really worth a listen in particular because it was at a time where he was getting a lot of critical acclaim, but didn't necessarily, you know, wasn't really hitting the charts. But a lot of artists get to that point doesn't mean their work isn't deserving of a huge listen. A couple of years later in 97, he did Earthling. And again, another album I absolutely love. That song on there, I'm Afraid of Americans. Haven't heard in a while. It's still stuck in my head. There's some drum and bass influence on this album too. And I've always been kind of a secret fan of drum and bass. Hours in 1999 to me. So would this would have been, when would it be? he would have been, uh, geez, I guess just turning through his 50s, right? And it to me is his first album where he was truly looking back, truly saying, here's what I've done before. Where am I now with it? What would it sound like now? So it has the folk rock of his early period, the soul of that middle 70s and the pop of the, let's say, the 80s and puts it all together. And really, one of those albums, like what I mentioned last week, Beatles Yesterday and Today, where it's eclectic in a good way. So this isn't, it's, yes, he's unclassifiable, but I'm saying this particular album was just super wonderfully eclectic. Heathen in 2002, another critical darling. And again, a little of everything he'd ever done. And, an, and another great mix. So these are al- two albums where it was like, I'm checking in with where I am now, but also doing sort of a retrospective while not repeating myself in any significant way or being a tribute you know, to myself or any of that, like a lot of older artists do. The following year, Reality was what many people thought would be his last album. It was just, again, he's like, I've done what I did. I'm going to do straight ahead rock. And I remember enjoying this too. And what, again, what I love about artists who bounce like this is that they, you may lose their thread, but if you come back to it, you eventually realize how refreshing it is that they just change everything up every so often. And I think I felt that way about reality. And then he had a heart attack and, and it wasn't certain, A, whether he'd survive and B, whether he'd ever do another album again. He performed, but he was recovering physically and also, I think, just reassessing a lot of things life-wise. There was during... Uh, that period or maybe just after that when a good friend of mine whose wife was part of a dance troupe went to see a show of that dance troupe and it just turned out that Bowie's daughter was in that troupe as well and he was sitting like next to her in the audience just kind of very chill you know it would have been in the late 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 O's early teens I believe in here in New York by the way where he lived you know uh, and so then it took 10 years for another album to come out, and that was the next day in 2013. And another solid mix-up of styles. Kind of like, here I am, I'm in my 60s, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. The only reason I'm doing this is for the love of it, you know? So I'm just going to do everything and anything. And then, of course, you come to Black Star in 2016. Um uh, you know, done and completed before he died, but and singles were released, but then released mostly posthumously. And it was a more focused mix of styles than the next day. And of course, a lot of that focus came from, you know, his death and knowing that he was going to die soon, being all over that album. And just the creepiness of Button Eyes is, you're over, is overtaken or over, overshadowed by how just personal and deep and heartfelt and and yet presentational it's laid back and kind of very self-assured but also super urgent and just tears at you in just all the best and worst ways you know and to end a career like that and even he said it was a kind of a gift to the audience to say well I'm not going to be here here's here's my last thing for you 
death is just fucking dumb, you know. And my summary of all this is that to me, Bowie was two very specific things above all. One is he was always what he wanted to be. There was never a time in his career where he he didn't present and do what he wanted to do. And I mean, if he were alive, talk to him, he might say, oh, well, I did this song, blah, blah, contract, or blah, blah, working with an artist. But those are minor kind of incidences that don't really even reflect or define that particular period of whenever they came out. He was always what he wanted to be. And number two, he was at some point everything anyone wanted to see him as. Whether you wanted him to be an artsy dude or a, th- or a theatrical dude or a rock dude or a pop dude or a funk dude or, you know, a band dude or a solo dude and just keep on and on and on. He was always those things. And that to me, and he was successful at it. And that's the amazing thing is that he did all this and, and defied really the industry and a lot of the people's ability to absorb music often constrained by, again, you know, jumping from style to style People make a slight shift like Dylan going from acoustic to rock and people just blow their the tops off. Like, how could you do that to us? So for him to be this successful at it, again, looking in the macro, but even some huge micro successes, he is the paragon of what amalgamated music sounds like in all its forms of loyalty to inner truth of challenging yourself, of being restless enough to say, well, I've done this well, but what if I add this to it? Or what if I throw all of it out and do this instead? Of constant motion and of self-determination. Just all huge things in my world, and I think should be huge things in everyone's world. And that, to me, is how I can say that if there's one way to classify everything about Bowie, it's that change is his, his constant why I went through all those subtitles. None of them quite worked. But though that to me, you can look at, let's say, same thing like Prince's career and say change was his constant and and self-challenging and all the same things I just mentioned with Bowie. And and so like, you know, historians decades from now can look and say that body of work has fusion to it, has cohesion to it. Which gets you, of course, to the last part of every episode. The song that I'm spotlighting this week is a song called Silence of the Disabused. I had done a song on Symphony for the Weird, which is this uh, song is also on that album, called Wonder Wonder, which to me was, I wrote it as part of a three-song piece when I was heavily influenced by Bowie in the early teens and then didn't develop it until Symphony for the Weird in 2020. And that one, if you listen to, is just huge Bowie, right? But I've hived spotlight already, and one of the things I'm trying to achieve here is to not repeat a spotlight song, you know, and you can check out the playlist of all the spotlight songs on youtube.com slash music is not a genre. Songs featured in music is not a genre, I think it's called, or something like that. Silence of the, this abuse was written for a film. It was written uh, almost entirely on the phone while I was talking to the film's director, and then fleshed out after that, obviously. And it has a very kind of space oddity feel to it. It's based in acoustic music. It has some kind of like, uh, you know, world-influenced uh, drums uh, and percussion. It has an etherealness to it. There's some slight psychedelic, uh, you know, qualities to it. But generally, it's a kind of a straightforward art folk song in a way, but very urgent and the title refers to how at a certain point, once you've been disabused of your preconceptions about life, what you find inside of you is that inner silence and peace where there's just no more to say. Where you realize that the great thing about, the, the, the most defining thing about life is that it's undefinable. Which, well, coincidentally, works with this Bowie episode. So take a listen to it in the next few seconds. It's going to pop up right there. Check it out on streaming Silence of the Disabused. Uh, It's one of the few songs I've written where you could probably just put that title in and it will pop up. And if not, put Silence of the Disabused. It's on Rec Collection, the best of Rec 2007 to 2020, and also on Symphony for the Weird. Are you a Bowie fan after all of this? 
listening through? You must be if you've gone this far. And if so, when did you get into him? Uh, and does did that define what you thought of him as the way it did for me for the Let's Dance period? Or in what period would that be for you? Were you able to then explore most or all of the rest of his phases and changes and all of that? Or did you just stick with the stuff that you initially liked? Have you always yeah, thought of Bowie as whatever of his music you got into first? Or were you ever able to integrate his full range of expression? You know, And if you're not a Bowie fan, why not? Is it because it's hard to get into, you know, as far as like pin down, where do you start? Or is it just not your flavor? I want to know all this as always because my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you, and I will talk to you next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 